This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Beauty is often dismissed as superfluous and frivolous cultural consumption. In her book, Beauty Regimes, A History of Power and Modern Empire in the Philippines, Genevieve Clutario asked the readers, what can we gain by taking beauty seriously? What does it tell us about national identity formation and intimate connections between overlapping empires? Bringing together sartorial styles and women's labor by critically engaging with archival documents ranging from colonial government reports to photograph collections, memoirs, and women's magazines, Plotaria shows how, quote, colonial subjects like Filipinas were not only impacted by nation building, but also actively shaped colonial and national ventures within and beyond national borders. Clutario shifts from the conventional periodization of Philippine history to highlight the continuities and power structures as eliminated by beauty across imperial histories. I am pleased to welcome Genevieve today at the New Books Network in Gender Studies to talk about her new book, Beauty Regimes. Genevieve, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, and I'm really excited to interview you too. Um, can you tell us about yourself and how you pay how you became invested in Filipina beauty production? Yeah, so I'm a cultural historian um, and I'm an American studies professor. So um, how I got into doing this particular project was it actually stems from my graduate school work Mm -hmm. where I was getting my PhD in history and I just knew more broadly that I wanted to do Philippinex history or Philippine history. Um, and that I knew that I wanted to do something on gender and I knew I wanted mm-hmm. to do something on cultural history. So very, very broad. And I, um, but as I was doing my uh, archival research in the Philippines, I, mm-hmm. you know, was sort of gravitated to two different things. And so one was on 
the first part was on aesthetics and beauty. And I was looking at photographs of these beauty queens from like the early 20th century. And I was super fascinated. And then the second thing that I was interested in was food culture and um, sort of food labor and, you know, things like that. And one of my committee members just told me I had to choose. So (laughs) I I was like, well, I'm going to, I choose fashion and beauty and aesthetics Mm. just because I Mm. was already really, you know, gravitating towards that. Mm. Um, And also because I had to, I sort of thought about it, like, why, why did I gravitate towards these, you know, sort of photographs, these beauty queens? And, um, and I think it's because beauty pageants were super ubiquitous to me growing up where, you know, um, you know, if I visited my dad's hometown, there were always these um, sort of pageantry that would happen every every year where a queen would be crowned and uh, to sort of celebrate like the patron saint of that town <laughs> every year and it was sort of like a fundraising thing. Um, but also because, you know, Miss Universe was always on TV every year <laughs> and, and it was yeah. just sort of in, the, it was just in the background, you know, it's just sort mm. of so... Um, I didn't think about it too much, but it was, you know, just always around and there. So um, I think that kind of stuff kind of helped guide, you know, my interests. Um, yeah. And then once I decided on that, then I kept finding mm-hmm. um, documents and sources that was really, you know, showing how central beauty is mm-hmm. to like colonial culture, nationalist culture in the Philippines um, mm-hmm. and for the Philippinex diaspora. Uh, so it just, one thing led to another and I, and and then I found a lot for for this book. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. And then honestly, like everything that you mentioned as your research interest sounded super interesting, but I'm really glad you chose beauty because uh, I think, yeah, (laughs) I was really attracted to it too. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, um, also like thinking about like Korea and like, um, because, you know, you talk about like the importance of politicizing on beauty and I feel like Mm -hmm. because you know like I'm in Korea right now like I have also been thinking about beauty a lot because it's like constantly like you know like there's so many like advertisements to you know like you know make you more beautiful and then my cousin was actually sharing with me how um she went to this like uh you know like a a plastic surgery place uh you know in Mm -hmm. Gangnam and then um they were criticizing her nose saying that you know like basically like the straight noses from you know the west is like the most civilized while you know like uh, the flat noses kind of symbolize like the backwardness and then like how she like needs mm. to get her like nose changed you know yeah, um, yeah. have yeah. some uh, cosmetic adjustments <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean yeah. I, I would imagine it's hard to um it's so ubiquitous and in your face um, yeah. since the cosmetic industry is so big yeah. there um, yeah. and has spilled out globally, right? So... Um, yeah yeah exactly yeah and then it's like also like it's connected to the military history too like uh Kathy Hong right. has like yeah written about how like the double eyelid surgery like kind of can be like traced back to like the U.S. military occupation yeah um, yeah. yeah 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 I was so just I, reading yeah. um yeah I was reading Hedgen Lee's work on, oh, on that oh, too sorry. and yeah. and I I think that's also 
that kind of work on militarization and U.S. empire and yeah. Korea, um, I find it really relates to the way that I approach beauty in this book, mm. um, which is yeah. not so much that I'm trying to politicize beauty, but it's yeah. more that beauty was already political, mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. so or so sort of in two ways to like so when I use the term beauty regimes Mm. I use it both as a framework to understand how politics Mm. culture economics um is Mm. you know intertwined and to to kind of use it as a framework to understand that like kind of understand entanglements that we don't really you know Mm. maybe not like typically like think about you know connecting beauty pageants to like colonial Mm. government or like thinking about you know embroidery to you know to the secretary of war you know (laughs) like these kinds of things um so using beauty as a framework to kind of uncover those connections but at the Mm. same time to also think about how um but also to think about how beauty can also be seen as a political force so that there are entities institutions and individuals that will you know um that will use beauty, fashion, aesthetics um, mm. for for political gain, economic gain, mm. for power. So it's mm. really about trying to mm. think about what what can beauty and fashion tell us about power, and and that and I think it really is in conversation with the kinds of references that you're making, um, you know. And I I really see this work as as part of that that discourse, you know, and part of that um, speaking to and with that scholarship. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, thank you for pointing out that, yeah, beauty had always been and is like political already. It's already like a political project with uh, so many like uh, investments already, like Mm -hmm. that are like interconnected. Yeah. 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 I I really do think people are deeply invested in it yeah. um, and you know not only as like individuals but what I try mm. to show is that institutions are also mm. deeply invested yeah. in the potential of what beauty can do um yeah. for better or worse right um yeah. and I think investment is such a is such a good word to describe it yeah yeah exactly and then yeah your methodology also is about kind of like tracing like you know various institutions that also the people as actors uh with you know mm-hmm. like um with agencies uh but you know i guess like agencies uh, like not being a simple concept but you know with like competing uh agencies within the structure that uh exist um and i wanted to um actually like uh, ask about uh, providing context first, actually, for the audience mm-hmm. about sure. uh, yeah the Spanish uh, and then the U.S. regimes, uh, and then how this kind of like engendered tension between Filipina elites and American women uh, as uh, can be seen through fashion. Yeah, so um, the book starts in around like 1898, 1899, and you know for U.S. history, it this history usually starts as telling a story about the United States colonizing mm-hmm. the Philippines, and it starts with the Philippine-American War. And I do start at that contact point, but the yeah. but what I try to emphasize is that you know the United States uh, is you know there. But that 
the transition between uh, the transition to U.S. colonial control of the Philippines, um, it's important to recognize that there was also centuries of Spanish colonialism in the Philippines. And there's sort of this, at least like in U.S. history, there's like this tendency to to not really consider that um, at all or to just kind of think about you know, colonial transition as clean breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I was trying to do is say, well, if you're a colonial subject, it's not a clean break. You mm-hmm. are yeah. totally aware of the colonialism that you have already <laughs> experienced. And that doesn't go away, um, even as a new colonial entity comes into power. And that that transition actually is very rocky. Um, it's a lot of um a lot of nuance to that, a lot of negotiation. So with to your question about these um Filipina elites um in uh in this context, so I you know, came across these documents and they're actually written by white American women. Mm-hmm. And there are these documents about these white American women who are part of the entourage for the Philippine Commission. Mm-hmm. And the Philippine Commission is um, tasked with setting up the civil American civil government within the Philippines. And, um, and so like, this is like McKinley, uh, so McKinley tells Taft and Taft has to set up a commission. But there are all these women that um, are assigned to go to to also do this political project. And they write these letters and they write these memoirs and these books. Mm-hmm. And in these writings that are from their point of view, um, they're also writing about Filipinas and Filipino women. Mm-hmm. And so it's not from the voice of or the perspective of Filipino women, mm-hmm. but you can see when you read in between the lines that they are these huge figures that cannot be kind of contained mm-hmm. by these writings. Yeah. And what I notice is that while they're on tour, and in particular in the Western Visayas, which is a very, at the time, a very um, uh, wealthy area of the Philippines, that this is a sort of a place that had, um, you know, haciendas and there, you know, it was a lot, they made a lot of money through agriculture, through Mm -hmm. big sugar, um, through coconuts. uh, And they had made a lot of money during the Spanish colonial period and had accumulated a lot of political power. So when these American women are encountering Filipino elites, they are American, white American women in particular, their ideas of a savage backwards um, new colony in the tropics is totally shattered because these elite Filipinas have already accumulated so much wealth and they um, see themselves as inheritors of like European um, civilization Mm -hmm. as many of them are mestiza, Many of them are educated under a Spanish system. You know, their husbands, their fathers, their brothers are sent to Europe to go to school. They themselves go to Europe to go shopping, to also go to school. They, you know, so they see themselves as very cosmopolitan. Um, And so they were able to, to, um, concretize the status within Spanish mm-hmm. Spanish colonial system mm-hmm. and that doesn't go away uh it, it so you have this sort of like clash between them and uh Americans and what um 
what I try to show is that in that encounter is like both an encounter between these two groups of women who are sizing each other up, mm-hmm. um, who have a, a lot of um, state, there's a lot at stake for themselves, both like in terms of power and money. Um, they're also trying to understand what a new political colonial system would mean and what their position would be in this mm-hmm. colonial system. And in the writing, a lot of that is articulated through descriptions of how they appear to one another. It's about their sartorial descriptions. So yeah. when white American women are writing about, you know, these Filipinas, they're talking, they talk a lot about their luxurious gowns, their gold mm. um, accessories, their diamonds, and it's all quite shocking. And um. in, in <laughs> they, you know, we'll write like lines like um, about you know, un- they'll, they won't name the woman, but, um, you know, they'll say, oh, one Filipino woman, you know, was giving me backhanded compliments and saying, like, <laughs> where, you know, like, why, why does your outfit suck? Yeah, where are your yeah. gold <laughs> jewelry and where are your diamonds? And then they don't have any. So it's a lot about class tension. It's a lot about, like, um, you know, investment in white supremacy kind mm-hmm. of cr- mm-hmm. crashing, you know, uh, visions of yourself crashing. And, and, <laughs> That's awesome. And that, those yeah. Kind of, yeah. And then those kind of ugly feelings um, mm-hmm. really speak to uh, like they seem like minor ugly feelings and like little tensions and like pettiness, but actually mm-hmm. it has so much to do with this colonial transition between Spanish mm-hmm. and U.S. empire. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And then I feel like it must have been kind of satisfying to see, you know, they're like uh, white oh, supremacy yeah. just like crashing into pieces. Yeah, yeah, it was it was really funny uh, when I was reading these letters. I mean, on the one hand, I really felt bad for this, you know, woman who was <laughs> yeah. had, like really um, having a hard time. She was writing to her family and she was saying, we look like drowned rats. And, you know, and, <laughs> You know, and I'm like, ooh, yeah. she's really having a hard time. But at the same time, it was really, um, it was also pretty shocking to me mm-hmm. because, you know, I had, you know, read secondary texts mm-hmm. about, you know, um, U.S. colonization. And there wasn't really anything that talked about that kind of, um, yeah. you know, that kind of friction or that tension. And so it was, it, it was satisfying to see some to see something a little bit deeper uh, and to see, you know, something, um, you know, and and to see this kind of tension play out that I I thought Mm. was actually really, really, it would be extra funny if it wasn't about colonialism, right? uh, (laughs) you know, it was kind of like colonial mean girls. um, That's so funny. That's so true. Yeah. (laughs) But it, you know, it did make it really, like really interesting to delve into. Yeah, yeah. I guess colonial mean girls. Like I feel like that's like a perfect title actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But yeah, I really um appreciated, you know, your kind of like nuanced analysis on power. And um I loved how, you know, you situate the Manila Carnival Queen contest as like a site of negotiating US imperialism. Um mm-hmm. uh, can you tell the audience more about the contest and then and, you know, yeah. like how, yeah, how they like, you know, negotiate U.S. imperialism. 
Sure. So the Manila Carnival Queen contest, this is actually the photographs from this contest is what Mm. got me into this work because I saw these photographs of uh, women, it's like portraits of women who are wearing these really stunning gowns with huge crowns and sashes and just, uh, so there's a lot of uh, photographic documentation of this. And the Manila Carnival Queen contest is the precursor to what would become Miss Philippines. And, um, and Miss Philippines is the precursor to the sort of national contest that exists in the Philippines today that leads to sort of international, uh, pageantry like Miss Universe, Miss World. So it's it's um it's important because it has uh because it is at the heart of this larger pageantry industry mm-hmm. that is really very important um and huge in the Philippines. But the Middle Carnival Queen contest itself starts in 1908, and it's actually a fundraiser, and it starts as a fundraiser, and it's not quite a beauty pageant it's more of a popularity contest and so the idea of it was the colonial state um wants to hold something called a philippine exposition and the philippine exposition is like any other world's fair or exposition and it's to showcase you know industry to showcase power um and to the world, right? And you showcase this to also entice investors mm-hmm. to bring in capital um, into the colony. So, um, so this Philippine exposition would, uh, you know, put on display all of the different kinds of industries that potential investors could put their money into, and then support the colonial state. And at the same time, the U.S. colonial state could be like, oh, we're so successful as as um, as colonizers. Um, but in order to hold the exposition, they also needed to accumulate capital. So it takes capital to get capital, right? So yeah. Um, This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In order to do this, they said, okay, we're going to, we need to raise funds. So let's, part of one way we can raise funds is having this popularity contest. Mm -hmm. And so the popularity contest, what it means is that you would have different candidates and each candidate would represent a particular community within Manila. And so there would be the Filipino community, there would be the American community, there would be the Spanish community, and then um, and then sometimes there's like other ones, but like other European ones. Um, and uh, so they sort of divided it up. And then what you would do is that you would buy ballots from uh, already approved newspapers. And so you would have to buy the newspaper so that you could buy a ballot. And so buying the newspaper is what 
you know, eventually added to the funds for the middle, you know, for the larger exposition. And so you can buy as many ballots as you wanted. And so the more ballots, the better, right, for fundraising. Mm -hmm. And um, and so what ends up happening is um, in the minds of these sort of of the Manila Carnival Association, which is, you know, works hand in hand with the with the government, with the colonial state. Um, they're like, well, um, like we just hope people buy a lot of ballots <laughs> stuff so that we can get a lot of money. And but what ends up happening is there ends up being a scandal. And there ends up being cheating. Uh, so the American side gets accused of cheating. And um, so what you see is in the very same newspapers that are used to make money for the mm-hmm. state, um, that they're also become they also become platforms to talk about, like to to talk about how the Americans are cheating, mm-hmm. and that if Americans are cheating. You know they're not going to be trusted, and then, um, but then because of that, then it also start they start using really nationalistic uh, language mm-hmm. and really talking about what it means to be Filipino. And keep in mind, being Filipino is a really new concept. Like the identity yeah. of Filipino is is really new, so they're making it up as they're going along. Um, and so, uh, what ends up happening with that first contest is they have to do away with a lot of stuff and I won't get into too many details, but they, um, what they do is they decide, this association decides, okay, we're going to have two Queens. We're going to have a queen of the Orient, which is going to be the Filipinos. And then the queen of the Occident, which is going to be the Americans. And, and then it's fair because there are two. Um, and then, but they thought that that would squash the drama, but what it actually does is that it, that actual pageantry of the contest, it, it kind of um, gets too big for what what it was intended to do. And that these newspapers continue to talk about the Queen of the Orient in this very nationalistic way and also continue to um, criticize the United States because of what they see as unfair treatment between the two queens. Um, and, you know, eventually the queen of the Orient is supposed to like give her crown up to the queen of the Occident. And then the queen of the Occident becomes a middle car- carnival queen. And it, it is just so much drama. So the unintended consequence is that it becomes this platform for um, nationalist discourse and that the drama of beauty becomes this um becomes a vehicle uh and not just a vehicle but it it becomes this force right to like really get people it gives uh, a sort of a language and a platform to like talk about what it means to be filipino but also to criticize the united states um and then the contest beco- exceeds expectations so that it becomes the most popular thing about the whole Philippine exposition. <laughs> so they have to start doing it every year. I mean, they don't, there's like a couple of years where there's like, it's missing, um, but it um, it has sort of the snowball effect and it becomes its own entity. It becomes its own industry. What it means mm-hmm. to be a beauty queen becomes something else and it becomes really important uh, and significant into defining what it means to be uh, Filipina, um, mm. but also what it means to be the Philippines, e- 
even before the Philippines is considered a nation. So, you know, it's like pre-nation, it's like proto, you know, proto-nation, but, um, but you can see all of the mechanisms of nationalism happening happening through this this contest, which eventually becomes a beauty pageant. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting because yeah, like you talk about yeah, how does a colony become a nation? Um, and yeah. then yeah, yeah, and then I felt that yeah, it was uh, super interesting because you know like uh seeing uh basically like uh the contest is so interesting because yeah it involves like so many different actors you know it's like not just like quote-unquote political like you know like political Mm -hmm. in like a very like conventional sense because you know it's all political yeah yeah Yeah. but it's true right it's like there are you know people who work in the state and then you have the beauty pageant contest contestants themselves but it's also their families and that their families have investment for this because it becomes something that also is a status marker, you know, um, and then and then it gets really complicated in terms of like, well, what constitute what makes a beauty queen? Mm-hmm. And, and it's not just about aesthetics. Um, it's it's also about your background, your family yeah. background, you know, what school you go to. Are, are you a student? What or what student organizations back you up? Uh, and, and it, so it's um, it becomes super com- it becomes a super complex industry um, and system that um, that I don't think that the original uh uh, people who organized the contest really thought about. And uh, what they didn't also understand is that pageantry is was already a really important part of mm-hmm. Philippine culture, you know, throughout the archipelago. You know, you have a lot of different towns and regions and you have a lot of different ethnic groups and, and whatnot. But what you'll find... Um, in very in all, a lot of different regions is that pageantry is is a big deal and whether that's religious pageantry or you know whatever um and and so like those kinds of like the culture of pageantry already existed it's not like the united states like brought it um right. you know and, and, and it's sort of like this negotiation between like that kind of pageantry that already has, you know, existed and has been, you know, um, being formed and it's like super dynamic over time. And then, you know, the United States tries to do this contest and then, and then again, it just like exceeds what it was supposed to be intended for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, like, I love the idea of like, you know, like exceeding, you know, like the original intention as well of yeah. like, of the someone of, the of, of, I guess, like what's in power, but then I guess like right. uh, yeah. actors, you know, individual actors, and then like families actually yeah. have so much more power than they think. Yeah. Yeah. They can't totally be con- controlled. And then I think it also yeah. exposes the other kinds of hierarchies that um that are in place right so it's not just colonizer versus colonized it's also like there are a lot of hierarchies within the philippines and then these kinds of um you know these uh arenas that i'm looking at of you know these different sort of um you know topics about beauty kind of expose how those hierarchies uh are 
are either reinforced or how they're changing and um you know they exist they exist and then they are contested and you know they're changing under u.s colonialism um and uh, but I, I i think ultimately i what i wanted to do was like well you know there are a lot of differences amongst filipinos and and to look at colonial power but also to look at um hierarchies within within the philippines yeah i think that really like kind of like captures like what i have been thinking like lately about like nationalism as well because like yeah i feel like nationalism is actually quite complex in a sense that like it is a method for self-determination for you know colonized people but at the same time the state can never save you in a sense you know the state will only really care yeah Yeah, about so much yeah 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 Yeah. exactly yeah yeah Yeah, totally yeah so it's like uh you know i get asked about like am I a fan of beauty pageants or like nationalism <laughs> and stuff I'm like so it's, it's not yeah. so much that I'm a fan um it's more that I appreciate the the kind of power that it has mm-hmm. but also what it can tell us about those kind of complexities that you're talking about mm-hmm. with nationalism right to like take it to take something seriously is not necessarily to like celebrate it but to really mm-hmm. take seriously the the kind like what kind of work is happening and what are the consequences and to you know look at the tensions and the complications and the contradictions and stuff and um and you know that's you know that's what I'm trying to show with the how I treat the historical documents and the historical actors yeah 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 it's definitely like a lot about like yeah the contestations and like negotiations and then like yeah the complexities like within to within different groups between like elites uh, yeah. and then yeah yeah absolutely um, yeah because I um as like a person who focuses on like labor a lot like I also really like appreciate it you know your like discussion on labor and um how like the racialization of Filipina women as like docile and dexterous yeah. you know like which still continues today yeah. as you know we all yeah know um really show kind of like the overlapping mechanism of empires and like global capitalism um can you tell us more more about how you know um all of these forces that I have mentioned shape the garment industry. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um so I have this section in the book and it you know encompasses two two chapters and what it looks at specifically within the garment industry and kind of other industries as well is the industry of of embroidery and um and that sounds weird and (laughs) sounds like maybe like really niche and insignificant um Mm. but what it actually is is it's like a huge it's a huge Mm. industry um that um was uh you know how do I say this? Embroidery had already existed and there are many kinds of embroidery and fine needlework, right? And the particular kind of fine needlework that is being done in particular, like with lace making, for example, it takes, um, it's, it's actually quite difficult and you have to be really skilled and you have to be trained in, uh, in, in a way to do certain kinds of patterns and to, to produce particular kinds of embroidery. And what I 
saw was like this thing that I had kind of seen as more of like something you do at home or like you know you do as like a hobby (laughs) and stuff um what I saw in the sources was that there were whole industries like just built around that and when um and when I started to look into like the documents because there was like a folder in the national in the U.S. National Archives in College Park Maryland that was just like labeled embroidery Mm -hmm. um yeah. And and I, you know, and then I was like, oh, what is this? And like, <laughs> I I opened it up and and um and I started, you know, reading the documents and like, oh, actually, you know, this is a story about um global capital and about out, out processing that I typically also associated with like late 20th century. And so um so just to kind of give an overview, what I saw was that the U.S. colonial state and also private investors saw an opportunity to capitalize on this already skilled set of laborers Mm -hmm. of uh, Filipina embroiderers. And so the Filipino embroiderers was very much like a cottage industry. And but still, like you had this group, you know, you had a set of of labor, of skilled labor that, you know, who's already, you know, trained to do this um very difficult work. And it was at a time where um, you know, there's this idea of having handmade goods that could be uh, purchased or consumed by larger markets in places like um, uh, retail stores and like department stores, like department stores are growing and stuff. And it, at the same time, it's happening during World War One, where there's a vacuum um, because of World War One in terms of handmade yeah. embroidered goods that you, that at the time, the sort of best or like the most coveted of this kind of um products are were made in Europe in particular in um Switzerland and France yeah but because there's a war nobody's making it so then yeah you know so then so then these kinds of um these different investors saw this as as an opportunity and um what so then I I just started tracking I just started tracking the product. And when I started tracking the product, then I found also more information about Filipina laborers themselves. Mm-hmm. And when I was looking at both the system of, you know, of uh, import export, but also production, um, what I found was in terms of out processing in, in a global capitalist system, you know, usually when you talk about production um, within, you know, what we would consider now the global south, right, um, or the production outside of the metropole, that production is often hidden, right? Yeah. Like, so you don't see like the tag, you know, you don't pay attention to the tags and your shirt <laughs> stuff. <laughs> but what I saw in the case of these Filipino embroiderers were actually, they were really central to the marketing of, of this embroidery because um, they were seen as like, you know, they were portrayed as these exotic, um, skilled women who are hand making handmade goods and that you know you can buy embroidered lingerie that's handmade that comes from a far off exotic place 
and that that was actually central to the marketing. Um, and I thought, I just thought that was weird. And then, then I, when I started following it, it was yeah. like, oh, actually what they're doing is they have to rewrite racial scripts mm-hmm. and they have to focus on dexterous fingers of skilled mm-hmm. Filipinas and create this racial story about them that undermines another racial story, which is one of racial Mm. disgust. And so um, they had to redo that so that, you know, you could have popular products. And then it was wildly popular. It was so popular. And, um, you know, you, a lot of American consumers bought Philippine lingerie. They bought, Mm -hmm. you know, christening gowns that were Mm -hmm. embroidered and pillows. And um, in at the turn, you know, the sort of Victorian, late Victorian um, uh, um, garment called like a waist shirt. It's like, or shirt waist, sorry, a shirt waist where it's like the the white shirt that you like tuck into the skirt and stuff. (laughs) So um, yeah, so I mean, that's... That's kind of how you see this collision of like, you know, racialization and gendered forms of labor, but in this really particular way that, um, that again, I found like super surprising and because it it was, it like sounded familiar, but then it was slightly different. Like that kept happening. I'm like, oh, this is familiar. Uh, Like, oh, I know the story, but then it was different. (laughs) And, And then that kept happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that affect is so important, though, because I guess that like difference, you know, like that, like familiarity, but actually it's like different from like what you suppose from like a very like, I guess, like Mm -hmm. the racial uh, script that we are like familiar with actually tells Mm -hmm. us that, you know, like the power is so much more nuanced uh, than we think. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Like race functions in this really contradictory way. Yeah. Yeah. but the ultimate goal is still the same, right? That in terms yeah. of who gets to accumulate and mm-hmm. control and benefit from capital. So even though you have this skilled set of workers, they don't get paid. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and or they get paid, but it's like a nominal. Yeah, it's not that yeah. great, right? Yeah. And so the racial script is different. Um, and the racial logics might appear different. And then it might seem like a celebration of Filipino artistry, except there are yeah. limits to that kind of racial script because they don't actually yeah. benefit from the growth of this industry. Mm. Um, and yeah. so, and then, you know, then I have this like other chapter that's like, oh, okay, so now I've taught you about embroidery. I'm going to show you how it's really like super messed up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, you know, or, or you know, we're like, okay, this industry is also um, really important to uh, to these um, to building industrial to industrial schools and also um, prison labor. Yeah, you know, and that like these institutions, which are surprisingly well, surprisingly to me, intertwined schools and prisons. Uh, yeah. it, that. Um, that embroidery was actually like a thing that uh, that was not only taught in prisons mm. and schools, but it was a generator of money, of capital mm. to fund prisons and schools. So, you know, it takes a dark turn um, yeah. or a darker turn. Um, but what I, I think, but what I hope is to show like a, is to kind of show how, um, you know, n- not to, 
to sort of overuse this metaphor, but you know, there are many threads <laughs> that yeah. link these things together and that there are unexpected or maybe unintuitive mm-hmm. links um, that colonialism brings together. And yeah. for me, I wanted to show those links, um, yeah. especially the unintuitive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because yeah, like I found it really fascinating when you were talking about how like, yeah, like the idea that like, of like the European civilization, and because you know, like the Filipina workers uh, were like, already, you know, like, uh, already have received this like civilization from, uh, from Europe, like, that's why, you know, like, they're so skilled. And then that's why you're mm-hmm. actually getting like the quality, you know, like embroidered goods, like not you know, like from the Philippines, but then actually from Europe, like that's kind yeah, of like the logic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Right. It's like, oh, they, well, they were trained by Spanish nuns. So yeah. it's like, it's European. <laughs> yeah, but it's also, yeah. you know, showcasing American ingenuity through colonization. Yeah. And then it also has this exotic quality, right? So, yeah. um, yeah. like that's I mean that was the logic the sort of marketing campaign it's so yeah. it's very I, I, when I was reading I was just shocked <laughs> so, yeah so you yeah. can imagine me you know as I'm writing I'm like is this for <laughs> you know I had to you know I was writing and putting things together and I would have to just kind of stop and stare off into the distance and be and think is is this really <laughs> like this is so intense you know and um and I'm like wow okay you know and I would constantly be like surprised and shocked but I'd be I'd say you know and then I have to double check and I'd look at the documents I'm like no no this is consistent (laughs) this is you know what you know these this is what the sources are saying so Right. Yeah. And then, yeah, I feel like sometimes it's me too. Sometimes I'll read things and then it would like kind of like blow my mind. And then I would just have to yeah. like stare off into the space for a bit just to right. kind of like compose to myself. Process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah you you got to process it. And, yeah. um, you know, and I think what's so sometimes shocking about archive, archival work is yeah. that, um, that there's sort of like a, audacity to what is being said oh my god like they're just so open about this yeah. no, there's no restraint okay yeah um, sure uh, yeah. oh my god so true yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. i'm just gonna quote you because you said it uh yeah know, so and you actually say it better than me actually because you're so unrestrained it like exposes the problem in such a clear light so it's like thank you you know oh thank you I appreciate that it's a lot of staring off into the distance and having to to work through it yeah 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 um I actually wanted to ask about like your methodology as well um because I loved how you know in the introduction you talk about like uh critical you know archival methodology and then also you were mentioning earlier how like when you saw uh in um, Nara like in College mm-hmm. Park uh the section called embroidery you're like oh what is this and then uh you know like it often kind of uh, archival research like often like took um turns that maybe like you didn't really anticipate or classifications that you might not have been necessarily looking for um so yeah can right. you tell us more about your methodology and uh, sure yeah. yeah so my um 
my advisor told me to try to be as creative as possible and um and so and he kind of you know he just really encouraged me to um, not be constrained by archival categories yeah and so okay so what do I mean by that so when I was first doing archival work and I would go to a library or an archive and I say oh I want to I just need stuff on Filipino women and um, <laughs> and they, there would be these really like paltry folders and um and you know sometimes you would tell me like oh you might have a hard time finding stuff and um and then because if you look up women and Filipinos or like Filipinas like the like there's not a lot so so then you know I had to become a little more creative and just really cast the net wide and I um you know like so I so then in because I was a little frustrated then I just was like you know I'm gonna look at everything and so I looked at things that were like maybe more intuitive like fashion magazines and which are so amazing like they're it's fashion magazines are a great resource like both in the Philippines but also like women's wear daily so in the Philippines I looked at like graphic magazine to like um uh, you know, they're like Women's World, uh, you know, they had all these, you know, magazines targeted to our Filipino reader, you know, but all the way to like Vogue, um, mm-hmm. like the Vogue archive and stuff. So th- I feel like those are a little bit more intuitive. And then, um, but then I was like, well, <laughs> I, I think I'm going to look at state documents and just kind of see what mm-hmm. happens. And, um, and then I, um, because I didn't really, I, I, I knew, so sometimes people are like, oh, you're not really going to find stuff. And I, I think I was just always kind of suspicious and I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> look anyways and, um, and then just try to accumulate as much as possible and then, and then mm-hmm. see what I can find. So I think having a healthy suspicion towards mm-hmm. archives generally helps because if you're, mm-hmm suspicious that you're not going to I think it makes it made me a little bit more curious and like dig into into um you know folders that might not seem like there's anything that will be about beauty and fashion and uh you know like I that's how I found Billy Bid prison I was like I'm randomly gonna look this up and um and um so I think that's part of what I did um and then um, it just took a long time. It's just, mm. it was really hard, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, but then I, and then I just kept going. I just was like, oh, I'm just gonna keep looking at these random things. And then I would find something small, and then I would, you know, tr- like try to pick up the trail and like trace it. Um, and then what I ended up happening, and I talk about this in the book a lot is, um, that I actually ended up with kind of an archival exhaustion where I I found a lot, Mm, I found like too much and it was exhausting. And, but even within the too much, there are also still a lot of things missing. Like I, it's hard to find collections Mm -hmm. that have, you know, that would have, you know, the perspective of, you know, Filipina embroiderers. I end up finding some of that, but 
it's not as if there's like, here's this collection of writing or like, here's this collection of interviews. You know, it, it was a lot of reading between the lines and then piecing fragments together. Yeah. So um, and that takes a lot of pa- um, patience because, right. you know, you have to, you'll just find snippets everywhere and then you have to put it together. Yeah, definitely. Like a lot of, yeah, like reading against the grain too. And then uh, I guess you need to like, kind of like have a framework to bring it together because I guess sometimes it's like, oh, like I, you know, like I know where it connects, but then also like, it seems like it's like kind of like all over. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it seems really huge. Uh, And then sometimes you just have to say, okay, well, that's, that's too much. I can't do that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I did really appreciate, you know, like um, how you really connect like many different uh, you know, like systems together. And then you talk about, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to actually ask you about uh, like the public schools and the colonial prison systems as well. And it's like connection and like Mm -hmm. disciplining um, Filipina workers. um, Yeah. 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 So I guess that's another example of, um, okay, so how I found that was I... I had mentioned that I found that embroidery photo or file and in the embroidery file, there were these catalogs of um, that were for the school of household industries. And Mm. I was like, what is, what is that? And, um, and so then that led me to looking up the whole Bureau of Education stuff. Yeah. And so then I did a deep dive into like, ed, you know, the education systems. And then I realized, oh, actually, there's this whole system for industrial schools and embroidery is, mm. is one of the few lucrative industries within yeah. uh, embroidery schools. So I, so I was looking at that and I was like, okay, education, embroidery, like, okay, I'm going to look at that. And then there was also, I was in NARA and I was like flipping through something. And then I found another catalog. I found a catalog and the catalog was for, um, for things that you could buy made in Bilibid prison. So Bilibid mm. prison is the largest, it's like the big prison in the Philippines at the time. And it was first created by the Spanish and then taken over by the United States. And in the early 20th century, it's the largest prison of all of the United States. So like not just in U- U.S. contiguous United States, but all of the United States empire, right? So it's, it's huge. So, um, so I found this catalog where it's like photographs of the prison and like also of convict workers, but also a list with prices and also photographs of things you can purchase from the prison. And I was like, what is this? Um, And it was a range of things where it was like, you could buy a carriage or like a kalesa. Uh, you could yeah. buy a baby crib. Um, mm. You could buy, um, and also you can buy embroidered goods. And mm. um, so, you know, that, so it, it wasn't so much the system. I wasn't, I didn't know to look for the system. It was actually embroidery that led me to uncover the yeah. system and then where and then when I I was like oh there are just so many parallels and then when I was reading somebody's dissertation and she had the and it was about the education system and she had like a 
taken a copy from one of the government documents and it laid out the bu- the bureaucracy of the education system and then in that bu- bureaucratic map it's it the bureau like the department the department of education or you know what the education office was called office of public instruction and then under office and public instruction was industrial schools, but it was also prisons and yeah. sales office and print. And <laughs> it's like, oh, there's a connection. Okay, so um, so once, I think this is what I also wanted to show in terms of method is like, you don't have to start at the systemic part or like yeah. looking at the top down it it was actually the work and the product that led me to understand these connections Mm -hmm. and it was looking at embroidery closely that showed me that actually this industry is housed both by prisons the office of prisons and also uh education and in fact these two institutions uh institutions are linked together they have the same officers that are in charge of them, but also they shared teachers and that not only do they share teachers, but they are borrowing the same principles of modernization and civilizing people yeah. to um, to justify mm-hmm. exploitative labor and yeah. that that kind of exploitative labor will further benefit these institutions of discipline, which is both mm. schooling and um, and prisons, and that both of these institutions use the language of reforming the yeah. student and the prisoner, um, mm-hmm. and and that's a part of a, a colonial ethos, right? So, yeah. um, so I I wouldn't have found it if I didn't care about embroidery. <laughs> Yeah. 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 And I really appreciate it too, because like sometimes like, you know, like there's a tendency to make beauty like abstract, but I thought that this is like a very clear example of how like, yeah, beauty is discipline and also like beauty is labor. And then like, I Mm -hmm. guess like taking that labor uh, to really show like that disciplinary and like colonial aspect of, uh, yeah like control and then but also just like extracting cheap labor by being like reform modernization we are doing charity work when you're like actually extracting labor yeah yeah Uh, yeah yeah yeah. Um, yeah. uh so yeah i really like appreciated the discussions as well yeah um i um don't want to take up too much of your time so actually um I wanted to ask my final question, which is, sure. um, what is the next project you're working on? Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's still about beauty. Oh yay! And, yeah. Um, I decided just to keep going, and yeah. um, but it looks at the Cold War period, so mm. I'm moving forward in time, <laughs> yeah. and I'm looking yeah. at. The concept of beauty as a political force in the Cold mm. War, but in particular during martial law in the Philippines. Yeah. And um, and so it looks at, you know, a range of things like uh what I well what I wanted to do was to understand Cold War power and politics in yeah. ways 
that might, again, be taken for granted. And that actually, a lot of Cold War politics has a lot to do with beauty. And whether that's beautification projects through modernization that's funded by the World Bank and the IMF in the Philippines, um, to, for example, during martial law, you have a lot of anti-martial law um, you know, activists and people fighting against, you know, uh, dictatorships. And so I found a lot of narratives and stories of beauty queens who sort of hang up their crowns to join, to become gorillas and, you know, join um, the CPP and and become these like radical, uh, you know, radical women, you know, who are fighting against martial law uh, and dictatorships and um, oftentimes become political prisoners. And, but their story, but the way that they're written about and um, is very much about that. They are beauty Queens who, um, who become activists. So, uh, you know, I'm interested in that and I'm also interested in, you know, um, uh, you know, interested in how, you know, um the dictatorship also impl- um use beauty as a political force to you know gain cause you know gain global power to gain um to get capital to also gain popularity so that people will look the other way when you have human rights violations mm. um so it's still in the very beginnings of the research but um i think this is the most fun part finding stuff and, yeah that's so exciting um, yeah. yeah 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 and i'm excited that i can continue the work about the politics of beauty yeah that's yeah that's really exciting yeah um yeah i watched the latest um blade runner 2020 something um and I, I, uh, and i was actually really struck by how um you know there's like there are like many sex workers or maybe there were two but then no i think there were many and then you know they're basically like at the forefront of revolution um so i actually like yeah. really liked the new one because i felt like it was trying to make a statement about how like you know like women's like you know beauty and like reproductive labor is like crucial for like revolution but then yeah, i like yeah tried to read the reviews about the film and I actually saw reviews that were like very critical saying like oh you know this is like you know really like anti-feminist you know why do they only portray women as like sex workers and stuff like that when I felt Mm -hmm. like actually like I thought it was like a really great representation of sex workers where you know they're like you know like politically active and you know they're actually like yeah you know like it shows like how you know like their you know their labor is like so crucial you know to like rethink society so yeah I, uh, you know, like right. I, it might not be related, but I was like, this might be an interesting, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. To to also look at who is um, sort of creating knowledge and perspectives about uh, not only what problems and exploitation might look like, but how to combat that and who gets to, you know, who gets to be a part of that story or write that story or, you know, who, like, who is invested in, in um, making change, right, is, I think that's a, I think you're right, that there is, there are, there are ways that we have to learn how to account for it and, like, listen to different historical actors. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, I don't really know like the context of how this film was created, but I thought I don't that either. I have to be honest, different, I never different saw the new one. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, but <laughs> yeah, I would I recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I'll add it to the list. I haven't, um, I watch a lot of bad tv so that oh, sounds yeah. like actually more quality tv than oh, yeah. what, what, what i can watch um but i yeah. i definitely have so many things to to add to my watching queue <laughs> yeah yeah oh but um thank you so much for the uh for the interview and it was so lovely to um it was so lovely to yeah. chat